Would you stop thinking about what everyone wants? Stop thinking about what I want, what he wants, what your parents want. What do you want? What do you want? It's not that simple. What it's... do you want? Well, who's on first? Yes. I mean the fella's name. Yes. I mean the guy playing first. Who? The fella playing first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? Well, what are you asking me for? <laughs> Why, God? <laughs> it is Arthur, King of the Britons. What? Is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What? Is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? What do you mean? An African or European swallow? Huh? I, I don't know that. Well, good morning. Just, uh, just for the record, it's not fair to ask me to preach after Monty Python. I'm just lodging that complaint with the communication department. Uh, so, I'm Derry Long, one of the pastors here. Great to see you. Hope you've been having a lovely weekend. This is the first in a series of uh, messages uh, about tough questions. And here's our question for today. Why do I do what I don't want to do? And we're going to be exploring that together. If you're a believer this morning and you're in this room, the people who are not believers have two unwritten undeclared but instinctive questions about us. We can talk all we want about what we believe, how important our faith is. They have two questions. One is, do you have the joy of the Lord? Is what you are doing around church, what you are doing in the Bible, what you are doing in this community of faith, what you believe, this, this thing about your relationship with Jesus, does it produce joy? Now, in the Bible, 6,000 verses, either directly or indirectly, talk about happiness. That's almost 25% of the entire scriptures. And yet, almost from the beginning, we have thought about happiness as if it is just too frivolous and shallow a goal. So true is that, that in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 to 7, the Beatitudes begin with the word blessed. If you go into the original language, that word actually is happy. But happy didn't sound religious enough, somber enough, solemn enough, godly enough. So the translators rummaged around for a word and they came up with the word blessed. Hey, doesn't that sound? I want to be blessed. I'm not sure what that means, but it sure sounds more spiritual than happy. But in fact, the people who are not here because they're not following Christ, they want to know this whole thing about Christ. Does it bring joy to you? When things are going well and when things are not going well, is there a resilience in your spirit, a joyfulness that comes from serving Christ? They have a second question. That question is, this thing about following Christ, does it, does it allow you to have victory over your own flesh? Or are you being defeated by the same things we're being defeated by? Do you live with the same guilt we're living with? The same frustration? 
Or does the power that you supposedly have in Christ, does it give you victory over your own flesh? The Apostle Paul in Galatians 5.1 says, for freedom's sake, Christ has set us free. Just because if you're a child of God, he expects that you expect that that should bring freedom in your life and that that freedom should extend to your own flesh. And if you're being defeated by the same things that are, being defeated, that are defeating me, then why would I want to come to church and read the Bible and just get more guilt on top of the guilt I already have? And so they want to know. Does this thing make you happier? Does it give you power over your own flesh? And that's the question we're going to pursue because look at this scripture from Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15. Paul is writing, and here's what he says. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me. Well, that's a feel-good passage, isn't it? <laughs> and yet, here we have in the Bible, over in Philippians, Paul is saying, I can do all things through Christ that strengtheneth me. How in the world do I match the two? Now, most Bible scholars agree that this passage I just read, this is a passage about Christians, not about non-Christians. So on one hand, Paul is telling me, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and yet over here in Romans, he's talking about this great inner warfare that seems to be a common experience of so many Christians that seem trapped and so they have good intentions. We have good intentions and yet so often are not able to pull that off. We have three children, Nathan, Nolan, and Natalie. Nathan, when he was about three years old, was doing something around the house. He kept getting into something that we didn't want him to get into. And finally, I raised my voice. I says, did you get into that? And Nathan, without blinking, said, the hand did it. Man, it starts early. <laughs> this, this thing that goes on. The Bible talks about sin. Sin as a cancer, as a toxic entity that invades us and brings death to us if allowed to go unabated. But there are a number of dimensions to sin. And fundamentally, sin isn't an it. The heart of sin... Well, how would we define it? Let's start here. The Bible tells us that the highest value in the kingdom of God is love. When Jesus was asked, what does all this mean? He says, I can condense it down for you. Matthew, he says, 
Love the Lord with all of your heart. Love others as yourself. Upon this hangs all the law and the prophets. Everything you read comes down to this. Love. Love is about relationship. And when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they decided to eat of the fruit of the one tree, they, they were given the entire perfect garden. God just says, don't eat of this tree because relationship always requires choice. Don't eat of this tree. What was the entrance of sin? It is independence. If the highest value in the kingdom of love, then the greatest sin is independence. Because the Bible tells us Eve was sitting by herself looking at the tree. And Satan came and enticed her. And on her own, she evaluated that tree. And she said, well, it's beautiful to look at. And it'll be great to eat. And it'll make me wise. And on her own, she made that decision. And then she invited Adam into that decision That's a tough message for us because there is no culture in the world that is more independent than the culture we live in. And yet we are involved in a faith whose core value, trumping every other value, its core value is love. And so when we become independent... We begin to isolate ourselves. And when we isolate ourselves, we weaken ourselves. And so the Bible talks about sin. And there's, there's a number of aspects to sin. There's inherited sin. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, we, we are born into this world with a bent towards independence, a bent towards isolation. There are acts of sin. The Bible talks about sin of the flesh, Committing adultery, lying, stealing, violence. There are sins of the spirit like bitterness and envy. There's even sin of omission. James says, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Man, that's a pretty high bar, isn't it? And so, there's structural flaws that are part of sin. There are things that we are born into like all of us are born into family units. And 45 years in this work, one of the things I've discovered, I don't understand it, but I know it is as true as the stage I'm standing on, is that there are structural flaws that get into families and it is passed down from generation to generation. I know families who every generation, they deal with bitterness. Families where generation after generation, they deal with anxiety. Families where generation after generation they deal with sexual sin. Peter had a structural flaw. Peter's structural flaw was he was afraid of people. He lived in fear of other people. So when Jesus is telling the disciples, now you're all going to forsake me as I face the cross, Peter says, I don't absolutely not. No, 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 not me. Everybody else may forsake you. I'm going to... He meant that. That was him. He, he, that's who he wanted to be. And yet the Bible tells us that when the maiden began to question him outside of Pilate's hall as Jesus was being tried, he denied the Lord three times. Jesus came out, looked at him. Scripture says he went off and he wept bitterly. 
But hey, Christ arose and they were reconciled and he was, he was able to have closure. But we, just, we dip into the New Testament, into the book of Acts, and we find Peter after Pentecost, after the filling of the Holy Spirit, we find that Peter had received a vision that the gospel was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles. And so he was hanging out with Gentiles. But you know what? Some Jews came to town. They saw what was going on. They began to criticize Peter. And the scripture says Peter withdrew himself from the Gentiles in fear of what was being said. And when Paul found out about it, he was so angry, the scripture says he withstood him to the face. Fear again. We don't really have any record that Peter ever fully conquered this structural flaw in his life of living in fear. There are even issues that, depending on my temperament, I will have a propensity for or a weakness in given areas. Like there are some temperaments that, are, that have greater weakness towards something like habitual gambling. Gambling has almost nothing to do with money. It has everything to do with excitement. And there are temperaments who need. There are people who, who will be trapped by pornography, which has almost nothing to do with sex. And it has everything to do with identity and revenge. And not only structural flaws, but I have constitutional flaws. You know, like someone says, well, I'm not sure I should eat that. I don't have a very strong constitution. Well, the Bible says I have a spiritually weak constitution. So Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I see through a glass darkly. Because of all that's happened in this world, I, just, I, I, just, I see through a glass darkly. That's why for me, I, I, I struggle with people who are just so sure about everything. I mean, really? You're that sure? The older I get, the less sure I get about most things, and the more sure I get about a few things. And a lot of people who are just sure about everything, they're sure about everything because they don't know how to function without being sure. It has nothing to do with reality or facts. And then, Paul, if that's not bad, how are we doing so far? Are we feeling good about ourselves? This is a... <laughs> Second Corinthians, Paul says, we have this treasure, this gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in an earthen vessel. Not some silver chalice owned by a king. Earthen vessel means a working pot that the peasants would use. And the pot is cracked. So we have this treasure in a cracked pot which is how we could have greeted each other today when we came in, because we are all cracked pots. So we've got, we've got inherited sin, acts of sin, structural falls, fallen constitution. And then here's the Bible, and the, the bar is high, and so you know what we do? We double down independence and isolation got us into this mess and because the bar is so high and our performance is so low we become more independent we isolate ourselves and we go into hiding as if that's the way out and all we've done is acerbate 
the problem. The Bible says in James, confess your faults. Here's what, here's what we want it to say. Confess your faults to God. You know why we want him not to say that? Because God's not telling. But that's not what James says. James says, confess your faults one to another. And since we've become independent and we've isolated chunks of our life we don't want anybody to know and we've gone into hiding, we all show up on Sunday morning and most of us clean up well and we think nobody else is wrestling with what we're wrestling with. And that isolates us even more. And so when Paul says, I, 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 I just can't seem to do what I want to do. In fact, he says, I end up doing the thing I hate. Now, we might be casual in our judgment of other people, and we say, well, if they do it once, they do it twice, maybe they're just struggling, but hey, they do it five or six times, they want to do it. That's not actually what Paul's saying here. He's saying there are good people who want to do the right thing and end up doing the very thing they hate. And then because of our independence and our isolation and our hiding, we actually increase our problem because the only way out is through a relationship with Jesus and a relationship with others where we began to let other people in. Paul says, I don't understand. Furthermore, he says in the next verse 18, he says, and I have a desire to do what's good. I want to do what's good. That is my desire. This person he's talking about here that seems so trapped in destructive behavior actually desires what to do, actually desires to do what's good. And here's the unique thing. Some people clean up better than other people. And so... The Bible says in 1 Samuel, God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. In the New Testament, he says, some people look like whited sepulchers. They look great on the outside, but on the inside are dead men's bones. So some of us, we can look like nothing bad's even going on. And so then we judge one another and we say, man, oh boy, they, they, they got it together. They're, they're doing great. Others of us, we can't hide it. We're a mess we come in a mess. Anybody who interacts with us leaves saying, boy, they're a mess. But God looks on the heart and he thinks, you know, this person that's all cleaned up, they're a mess because they, they're not even in touch with what's going on. And this person who's not very cleaned up, I look at their heart and I know how they yearn to do what's right. So now we're back to not a good thing for me to judge because I see through a glass darkly and God sees the heart and so here's Peter saying I won't leave you and forsake you Lord and he meant it and God gives us those little pictures because he wants to see that reality how many times have you said I got to read the Bible more I, I need to pray more but Paul is saying here I have an inability, an inability to execute my best intentions. 
I have an inability to execute my best intentions. You know why that is, partly? Because desire is not enough to produce change. You have to match desire with structural change. So here's what's happened to me in the last few weeks. A uh, few weeks ago, somebody said, you know, you ought, to, you ought to apply and see if you could be a TEDx speaker. You realize about a week and a half ago, the TEDx conference was here in this, in this room. And uh, I, uh, I don't. Uh, a couple other people randomly said that. So then somebody sent me a link and said, hey, they have extended the invitation time and you, you should do this. So three hours before the deadline for the extended time, I'm home and at nine o'clock at night, I thought, well, I'll, okay, I'll get on the computer and see what the uh, application process is. So there's this little just a little form you fill out, and they said, then they said, we, we'd like you to produce a video file. Well, that's a hoot. I still use pen and paper. I mean, I carry a little thing around that's got a Waterman pen and a Lamy uh, a fountain pen and a cross. A cross, you can get a, cross is probably the best cheap good pen ever made. It's about $55. And it is a great pen. And before you say, what? I'm going to tell you, my dad's crescent wrenches cost more than $55. So those are my tools. But anyway, so I'm on the computer. I have no idea how to make a video file. I'm not going to call someone. Now we're at 10 o'clock at night. I'm not going to call someone at 10 o'clock at night and try to figure out how to make a video file. So I just tinkered around. I thought I got it. Oh, 92nd. So I made this video file. It's like a... It's like 120 seconds. So then I got to make another. Well, that's 110 seconds. Then I make another one. That's 100 seconds. How in the world do you get something down to 90 seconds without just saying boo? <laughs> so, so I get it down. I send it in. I don't even know if I'm sending it in. I, I don't, I'm, you know, I hope they get this. And so then comes back. Thank you for your application. We have chosen you as a TEDx speaker. Oh, man. So, that's a hoot. You know, if you're going to be a TEDx speaker, you have to sign up for a minimum of four practice sessions with five coaches. Now, I've given like 3,000. I, I went back and tried to figure out how many times I've spoken in public. And I'm, it's, it's, it's got to be somewhere around 3,000. So now I'm going into this room, and there are five coaches, and you got to give your little talk. This talk's nine minutes long. So you're going to be able to produce a compelling, and my talk was on the topic, how to help those you care about thrive. How to help those you care about thrive. You have to have a compelling idea. It's got to have an introduction that grips people. It's got to have a series of ideas that have complexity and layer to them that's seductive to listen to, and yet it can't be more than nine minutes. That's the most density of anything I've ever produced. And so along with the four practices, I'm writing and rewriting and rewriting this thing and I'm in Denver and all the way home. You know, you can go, you can go through a nine-minute speech a lot, a lot from Denver to Bozeman. And I suppose I went over it a hundred times. 
Because, Lord, if you are in this, then this is not something I can mail in. Then I get here and I find out I'm the last speaker. So there's 16 of us, and I'm the last, and two of the TEDx organizers say, now, the reason you're the last is we always want to finish really strong, and we think, and I said, you know, I, I, didn't, need to need, I didn't need to know that until tomorrow. <laughs> so now, not only have I practiced this thing, and, and there's all this pressure around it, I know that they expect this this thing to really work as the number 16 so that we're not leaving the room crashing and burning. Now, why do I tell you all that? Because in order to do what I did, I had to structurally alter my life. I made dozens of little decisions to make space for the kind of practice and coaching and rehearsing and rewriting. And a lot of people just want desire. Man, I, I, I just wish I was stronger in this area. And then they tried, if they make any chuckstrel change, they try to just kind of squeeze it in amongst what's already there. And you know as soon as life jostles us, that thing gets squeezed back out. You've got to be willing to make structural changes in your life. Otherwise, you can end up with a desire to do good and, and the good never, never happens because the structure never gets changed. Bad systems, not just organizational systems, human systems, my personal system, bad systems overwhelm good intentions. And so Paul says, I, I do authentically have the desire to do what's good. This line of work, people come to me and ask for, sometimes, could you help us in our marriage? Now, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, okay. And then, usually, I say two things to them, which I'll say to you now. If you want a better marriage, you have to want it because I'm not going to want it more than you want it. Don't ask me to carry your want. Do you want it? The first time we have a meeting and you cancel it just because, well, you know, there was a long line at the gas station, then I can't care more than you care. Don't tell me you want to meet and then you not care. So I'm telling you up front, I'll care as much as you care. If you really care, I'll meet you late at night. I'll, I'll go the extra mile. I'll do anything I can do, but I will not care more than you care. So you decide if, if you're going to care. The second thing I tell people is... Uh, and this is especially if they got some big hurdles. I'll say, listen, you tell me now, are you willing to be unhappy for a year? Because if you're not, if the first time I give the husband something to do and he does it for like a couple weeks and old sweetie doesn't turn on the charm in return and he comes and he's brokenhearted and oh, I just don't know, I've been trying so hard and she's just, she's just not responding then let's, let's all save ourselves time here. 
Are you willing to give this a year and are you willing to throw in on it and you're willing not to be happy for a year? You're willing to, for God to bring up stuff and you're willing to hammer through stuff and you're willing to work on stuff and you're not turning around every, every week complaining because your mate didn't respond right. What are you willing to do for a year? And if you're not going to care and if, you're no, if you don't care enough to be willing to be unhappy for a year while you work on this then here's my number call me when you are structural change but you know the neat thing about this passage is that the end of this passage we pick up in chapter 8 verse 1 listen to this in a whole different tone Paul says Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because, the, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. Notice the change in the flavor. Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what, what is he talking about there? He said, the law, of, the law of sin and death is like the law of gravity. And I fly a lot, and I, I'm always amazed at how they get those heavy things off the ground. But you know, they get them off the ground. I'm, I'm going to use a non-scientific phrase just so we, it's easy for us to grasp. They don't try to get rid of the law of gravity. They overwhelm it with the law of aerodynamics. Some of us are trying to get rid of sin by living in the environment of sin and death. And you can't win in the environment of sin and death. You have to live in the environment of life and spirit. And the law of life and spirit overwhelms the world of sin and death. So in effect, you change the residency of your spirit. And you let the law of aerodynamics overwhelm the law of gravity that's pulling you down. Now, how do I do that? Well, two things. Number one, you've got to be all in. If you want the help of the Holy Spirit to help you overcome something, to not be all in with Christ is like trying to build a fortress wall to protect you and then allowing the enemy to build a stronghold inside the walls and then wonder why you're being defeated. No strongholds inside the walls. And one of the ways you get rid of stronghold is you stop hiding, quit isolating yourself, move away from independence, live under the law of love, and begin to open yourself up to the bigger world of resources and grace and spirit that the Lord has for you and I. And to do this, you do number two, you change your structural life so that there's space for this to happen. And amazing things can then happen. Do you know that uh, last Sunday, Journey Church was planted by Harvest Church in uh, Billings, Montana. And Harvest Church in Billings, Montana was planted by Faith Church in Billings, Montana. And last Sunday, those three churches together, this includes us, had approximately 9,000 people in attendance. Harvest Church met in the Metra. 
Vern Streeter is the pastor of that church, and uh, Vern, uh, Vern told the story about himself. He grew up, at, grew up going to school at West, and uh, those were the days when West and Senior had great uh, uh, rivalries, and the basketball games would be in the Metro. And uh, Vern decided one, uh, one day that it would be great if during one of those basketball games, a whole bunch of West kids would have tennis balls with things written on them negatively about senior, and at halftime, they'd all stand up as one, and they'd launch those balls across the basketball court into where all the senior kids are sitting. Vern says, uh, he's ADD, or intention deficit, and he says, one of the traits is it, didn't, it doesn't occur to you what the next step might be. And so uh, he pulled this off. He got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, tennis ball. He got a whole bunch of friends together. They tucked all these tennis balls in their big jackets because it's winter time. They snuck them in. During the game, they handed them out to all kinds of kids from West. Uh, halftime came. Some pom-pom girls came out and did a routine. They waited till that's over. And then in one big fell swoop, he got up and he yelled. And dozens and dozens of West kids stood up and they launched these tennis balls across the court into the senior place where all the senior kids were seated. Said, it never occurred to me that they might throw them back. <laughs> A few moments later, all these balls came launching back from the senior side into the west side. Now there are high school principals, there are police and security people, they're scurrying around the metro trying to quell this rising tide of, uh, of violence. Finally, they had all the tennis balls uh, gathered up and the game went on. Now I said, uh, Monday, he was in class at West and he got a call slip to see the principal. He says, I'll tell you how out of tune I am. I looked at that and I said, well, I wonder what they want. <laughs> By the way, in the audience on Sunday at the Metro was somebody who, 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 who evidently doesn't normally come to a harvest but was in the audience that day as he told this story again. He said, so he goes in, principal's office, there's a panel of people in the principal's office. Vern, we, uh, we have some suspicion that you were involved in this fracas at the ballgame. Absolutely lied through his teeth. Every kind of, well, well, okay, thank you, Vern. He leaves thinking, ah, boy, that's, I, got, I got out of that. Well, they just interviewed a few, a few people, and there's no, no honor among crooks. And it uh, didn't take long before other people fessed up Vern. They invited him back in, said they had the goods on him, suspended him for three days. He said, if at that moment the people who knew me knew that one day I would say, I am called to be a pastor and a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, nobody who knew me would have believed it. And yet one day he became a believer. And he will tell you the work wasn't done because there was a lot of fine-tuning and shaving of the edges and the work of the Holy Spirit until today he can tell you God can do anything he wants to on me and I am all in. And if we don't want to be the person that Paul describes in this verse, I'm doing what I hate and we got to be all in. The Holy Spirit has all of us 
And we have to allow him to guide us into structurally altering our life so that there is no accommodation in our life for anything as destructive as Paul is describing. Well, let's bow our heads as we finish this morning. Can I just ask you with our heads bowed in prayer and our eyes are closed and we're not looking around, but let me just ask. The audience of this size, some of us are struggling heavy with some stuff. Are you all in? Or is there a chunk of you that's independent and isolated and you're hiding? And it, isn't it time today just to say, you know, I gotta be, I don't wanna live this life Paul's describing in Romans 7, and I gotta be all in. Lord, forgive me for my independence. I yield my life to you. And would you give them the freedom to structurally change your life? Lord, if you, if you have something you want me to do, if you have people you want me to let in, if you want me to come out of hiding about what's going on, Lord, the answer is yes. And you can express those just to the Lord right now where you're seated. And just tell them, Lord, I'm sorry for my independence. I want to be all in. I want the power of the Holy Spirit. My answer is yes to structurally changing my life as you guide me. I'm moving away from the hiding, living in the light. You just tell the Lord that right now. And if you're praying that prayer, with our heads bowed in prayer and eyes closed just to honor the Christ who died on the cross so that we might live in happiness and freedom would you just lift your hand up and say Lord I, I prayed that prayer and I thank you for what you're offering me and just declare your loyalty to Christ yeah I see these you bet over here in my right through the middle over in the left you bet Father thank you for the life you invite us to we admit to the warfare we sometimes face inside. We want the freedom and the joy that comes with being in Christ. For all these who slip their hands up, I pray that not only will you give grace to them, but you'll give them early evidence of how you want them to move forward so that they can live in a new place that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.